please uh, look with me at Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses uh, 12 through 17 and at the end of our time together this morning, I trust we will find ourselves at verse 17. So hear this word of God, uh, again, given to us by a father who loves his children. Every word is spoken uh, out of the fullness of his heart, uh, out of a deep and eternal affection for his children, his sons and his daughters. So hear this word of God. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, please... Uh, Do help us by your spirit. We thank you for uh, this, your word. And I I confess to you this morning, uh, Lord, again, my own sense of of helplessness. How can we possibly get our minds around the ideas, the truths that are expressed in these verses? How can we do them justice somehow by your spirit's presence among us? In the foolishness of preaching, would you cause these things to live and breathe and activate the hearts of your people? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. A bunch of us uh, here in the church are either are or have read. Some of us are reading, um, but a bunch of us have read this book by... Uh, Paul Miller called A Praying Life, and I think there are still some copies uh, of it over there on the table if you want to pick up a, a copy. It's really, uh, as we've said, it's a, it's a great read. And, and in the chapters that, uh, that we read last week, the women's Bible study on Thursday and then the men's uh, prayer and uh, fellowship group on Wednesday morning, uh, the author talks about cynicism, um, uh, expends quite a good bit of time talking about cynicism, in fact, and how cynicism it acts kind of like a virus. You know, it, it, you know what a virus does? It's just a low-grade virus. It just kind of gets into your system, and it kind of guts you of your vitality. It just, it just sort of robs you of, of life, you know. And, and he likens cynicism, or I'm likening cynicism to a virus, uh, something that just kind of gets into you. Uh, and and guts you of life and 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 frankly robs you of joy and confidence and and faith and 
And I think he's right. I think, I think he's right that cynicism is a real problem for us. Um, if you check a dictionary definition, uh, if you look online or, or if you look in one of those books, you know, a dictionary, those things that we used to have in our houses, um, you'll, get, you'll get something like this. You'll get a definition like this. Cynicism is the conviction that everybody acts on the basis of self-interest. Cynicism is the conviction that everyone acts on the basis of self-interest. Cynicism says that everyone's basic motivation is self-interest. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there are a couple of influences in our culture of which we have to be aware I'm going to come back to that in this in a little bit. And you may remember the kind of the big words for these, these two influences in our culture are rationalism and empiricism. What is true is what I can understand. What is true is what I can see, touch, measure, weigh in a scale. Those are the things that are true. And if I can't understand it or if I can't weigh it, it isn't really true. And I think those are huge for us. But I also think cynicism is a third influence that guts us if we're not careful. It guts us of real vitality. We live in a cynical culture. We live in a culture in which people are motivated by self-interest. Uh, we live in a culture in which you have to scratch and claw and fight. Uh, we live in a culture in which you have to be suspicious of other people in order to get ahead. If you're too trusting... It's going to bite you. Right? My father didn't give me much advice as a kid growing up. He gave me one piece of advice. Haven't forgotten it. It's illustrative of what I think is true in our culture. My dad said, always look out for number one. Always look out for number one. Now, if you're always looking out for number one, and you are number one, right? You're being motivated fundamentally by self-interest. And I can't help but think through the years, and again, I don't mean to be unkind, I don't mean to be inappropriate with respect to my dad who, who is no longer among us and who I have good reason to believe is in the presence of Jesus. But as I reflect upon my relationship with my dad, I think, gee, dad, even in your relationship with me, you're still looking out for number one. Even in your relationship with your wife, with your daughter, with, with your brother, in the business that you ran together, you're still looking out for number one? A lot of us had sort of at the center of our cynicism a father, a mother, who may have been in large measure responsible for the cynicism, for the virus that has infected us. Not everybody, but I've been a pastor way too long, way too long, and I've had way too many conversations 
with way too many people understanding and knowing the nature of relationships to parents for me to conclude anything other than that. Maybe it wasn't a parent. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it's a source of, dis- or maybe it's a, a, a sequence of disappointments across the years that has produced in you a suspicion, a deep, deep suspicion, a cynicism about life. And here's where this becomes important. Whether it originates in a relationship with a parent or or a relationship to a friend, or neighbors, or just the culture, the world in which you find yourself, here's where this begins to impact and influence us. It makes it very hard to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. It makes it very hard for us to believe that the God of heaven and earth, the triune God of heaven and earth, Father and Son and Holy Spirit together have acted entirely apart from self-interest and in the interest of others. That's the gospel, my friends. The triune God of heaven and earth has acted entirely apart from self-interest, and has acted in the interest of others. And I think the cynicism that Paul Miller is talking about, the cynicism that so many of us have experienced, makes it very, very difficult to believe that God means what he says when he says the things to us that he says. And picking up where we left off last week, I will tell you that the only antidote, the only medicine to the cynicism that may be in your soul is the medicine of the gospel itself. To hear over and over and over and over and over again the one voice speaking in the universe who speaks not out of self-interest, but out of another centered interest, the voice that speaks because he cares about people like us, he loves sinners, he speaks for the benefit of sinners, he acts in behalf of sinners, and he does it for sinners, not because he needs to get more glory for himself. He happens to do that in the gospel. Not because he needs it. We've been saying all along as we've made our way through this section of this letter. Chapter 5 verse 1 through verses 38 and 39 of chapter 8. That it is this whole section is about assurance. This whole thing beginning at chapter 5 verse 1 is about assurance. The assurance that this salvation, which God has initiated, which God has accomplished in Jesus Christ, this salvation really is big enough for the sin, the brokenness, the sadness, the grief, the death, the curse that extend to the whole of the cosmos and that we labor under every day. It is big enough for all of it. That's the dominant theme of these chapters. 
Cynicism may be the prevailing spirit of the age, but cynicism is not the prevailing spirit of the gospel. The prevailing spirit of the gospel is hope. Is hope. These verses again that we're looking at, verses 12 through 17, and particularly this phrase, what it is to be led by the Spirit. Again, these verses have to be understood in the context of this very, very large work that God has accomplished, this work of redeeming people to himself, and this work that leads ultimately to the final restoration of everything, fixing everything that is broken. And what we have said about this phrase, the leading of the Spirit, is that we have been laid hold of and we are being taken somewhere. We are being taken somewhere. Let me say it now for the third time. The phrase, the leading of the Spirit, in verse 14, does not refer to subjective promptings. It does not refer to God giving us inclinations in particular directions. It's very clear in the text. The word that he uses, Paul uses, is very clear in the text. It suggests being taken hold of and being led And this again is B.B. Warfield's comment about the word. He says, it has stamped upon it the conception of the exertion of a power of control over the actions of its subject, which the strength of the led one is insufficient to withstand. And to that Every Christian should jump out of his or her seat and proclaim hallelujah to the God of heaven and earth that my power is not sufficient to extract my hand from his hand. He has laid hold of me never to let go again. That's what the word means. We are being led, if we are Christians this morning, if we have come to the place where we have acknowledged our sin and we have come to Jesus Christ. I said this to the inquirer's class. If that is true of you this morning, the reason you came to Jesus Christ is because Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit first came to you, laid hold of you, and brought you to himself so that you might come to him. Thanks to God I never would have come to him if he had not first come to me we are being led and so the question is where are we being led and let me suggest in a series of contrasts what the text tells us we are being led in the direction of life not death we've alluded to this We've sort of danced around this. We've suggested this. We are being led in the direction of life, and we are being led away from death. Listen to verses 12 and 14. So then, brothers, 
We are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. No longer debtors. Can I say it again? No longer under obligation to the flesh. No longer enslaved by it. Why? Because we have been delivered from it. Died to it. Raised to newness of life. Freed from its bondage. The Spirit has laid hold of us and is taking us from death in the direction of life. Now, I've got to give us some technical language here. It may be familiar to you, but I've thought about this all week. And I just feel constrained to give you this technical language so that you've got some pegs to hang some things on. And this is language that comes to us from the church as the church has reflected upon these things across the centuries. What we're talking about when we talk about the Spirit laying hold of us and now taking us in the direction of life, leading us away from death and in the direction of life, what we are talking about is this process of sanctification. This process by which we are, by the grace of God and the power of God and the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, moment by moment, bit by bit, day by day, being transformed into the glorious likeness of Jesus Christ. I've told you this story, used this illustration before. It's a cartoon that I saw in Christianity Today 30 years ago. It's a picture of a guy in a rumpled up suit leaning against his pulpit and the caption underneath it says, I've preached on the transforming power of the grace of God over these last four weeks. Why do you look like the same old bunch? Look, I know, I know that it doesn't feel sometimes like we're making any present, um, any um, progress. It sometimes looks to us as we look at one another that we're not making any progress. But you've got to read 2 Corinthians 4, for example, verses 16 and following, where Paul says, Though this outer man is wasting away, yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. That is the declarative, definitive speaking of God into a circumstance like the circumstance at Corinth. Of all places. It's what the, what the theologians call a, a universal positive. It, it applies to everybody who's a Christian. The outward man is wasting away. And yet the inner man is being renewed day by day. It is happening in you if you're a Christian. And we distinguish that work of sanctification from the work of regeneration. And here are the two words, okay? These are good words. Sanctification is what we call a synergistic work. The the little prefix S-Y-N means together with. And, And that last part of that word comes from a Greek word which means to work. 
Sanctification is this working together. It is the Holy Spirit working, and I am working. And if you remember Warfield's illustration, the illustration of being led, he reminds us that as the Spirit leads us, he is not carrying us. We also are exerting effort. We are expending energy. And sanctification requires effort on your part. Can I connect this back to last week? Take the medicine. Take the medicine. How is it that the Spirit changes things? How did the Spirit of God bring things into existence? By wedding Himself to the Word of God spoken. Word and Spirit come together and effect change and transformation. You've got to have, the way Edwards put it, you've got to have both heat and light. You have to have the light of the truth of God and you have to have the heat of the Holy Spirit. There has to be a marriage. And in order for that marriage to be affected, you and I have to do our part. We have to expend energy. We need to take the medicine. I've said, folks, don't come here on Sunday mornings to learn your Bibles. Read your Bibles. Digest your Bibles. Live in your Bibles Monday through Saturday, and then maybe by God's grace when you come here on Sunday morning, somebody will stand up here and make sense of it all. (laughs) Sanctification is this cooperative thing. There is energy to be expended. There is effort and exertion in this Christian life. Regeneration. Is what we call a monergistic work. The prefix M-O-N means one attached to the rest of that work word. One is working. The Spirit works in regeneration. It is His work alone He raises from death to life. But once He imparts that life, once He raises us from death to life, Using the analogy of new birth, that new life seeks to be nourished and fed and nurtured. It must grow. And in order to grow, it does have to be fed. And so we expend effort and energy. We're in the business, folks. We're in the business of moving in the direction of what the scriptures describe as conformity with the image of Jesus Christ. We're moving in the direction of his likeness. We're moving in the direction of glory. We're going to look at that more next week. And that process by which we are moved along this path is the process of sanctification. And there is something for us in it to do. And these means of grace that we refer to, beginning with the Word of God, but the fellowship of God's people and gathering at the table of the Lord, these are the means which God has appointed and by which we move from death in the direction of life. And let me just underscore this again and remind us that once God by His Spirit has laid hold of us, He will not let you go. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. 
Philippians 1.6. Where is the Spirit leading us? He is leading us in the direction of life. And here's another contrast, a second contrast. He is leading us from fear to security. He is leading us from fear to security. Paul says, verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry out, and you know this I know, by whom we cry out, Papa, Daddy, You see the contrast, the contrast between fear and security. Clearly, it seems to me when Paul uses this word fear, he's taking us back to where we were. He's taking us back to those days when we were married to the law and the law was oppressive and it produced terror and dread because wherever there is a violation of the law of God, there is the prospect of the wrath of God and the judgment of God. But you see, we've died to that. We've been delivered from that and we've been brought into this new place, this new standing, this place of security where we are now sons, sons of God, no longer afraid. I said this to the class this morning too. When you hear this word, sons, don't think, don't think gender. It's not gender. This isn't something that just applies to the guys. No, 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 no. When a Jewish person uses the word son, it is descriptive of honor. It is descriptive of privilege. It is descriptive of status. Twice in the Gospels, at his baptism and at the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father speaks. The Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I delight. This is my beloved son, the one who is the heir, the one who is privileged to sit at my right hand, the one who is honored, the one who has this status, and I delight in him. Paul says we've been led from a place of fear, a place of dread, the threat of condemnation. We've been led to this very same place, the place of a son, the son of your heavenly father. Again, I said this to the class this morning. And I I don't know how to get my own mind and heart around this, but this is the truth. Because you have come to Jesus Christ, because you have embraced Jesus Christ, your sin is no longer an issue before your Father, and it never will be. And because you have embraced Jesus, he has clothed you with his very righteousness. And clothing you with his very righteousness gives you the very same standing that he knows before his father as an honored, privileged son, an heir. Paul gets to that, an heir of the father's kingdom. 
Jesus speaks to his disciples, Luke 11:32, and says, don't, don't be troubled, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure, your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We've been led from a place of fear to a place of absolute security. This is the very thing that Jesus prayed for. John 17. Jesus prayed at the end of that high priestly prayer, this very thing. Jesus prayed for you and for me that we would know that we are loved by the Father in the very same way that Jesus is loved by the Father. Can you fathom such a thing? Can you fathom that the God of heaven and earth, infinite, eternal, unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, that this God loves you with the very same affection that he loves the eternal Son of God. That is what Jesus prayed that we would understand. a conversation this last week with a college student who is at a very difficult and wonderful place in his life. I hate this thing. Struggling. Struggling in a sense to make it back. To get back to his father struggling with what it might cost him to return to his father. And he said to me, I'm afraid of what I might lose. And I said, there is a very real chance that you will lose all of these friends. But when contrasted, with what it is to gain this place of privilege and honor as the beloved son, not of an earthly father, but of the eternal God of heaven and earth, what comparison is there to make? There is none. There is none. This leading of the Spirit is to lead us from fear and doubt and dread and threat and uncertainty to a place of absolute assurance and security. started reading a biography. A friend recommended a biography of Teddy Roosevelt. It's the first of this three-volume biography by Edmund Morris. Teddy Roosevelt had terrible asthma as a young boy. And this biographer describes Roosevelt barely able to breathe, barely able to get himself on his feet. And his father almost literally breathing life into his lungs. So deep was his attachment to his son. So deep was his love for his son. Literally, 
picking him up in his arms and carrying him and keeping him alive. Why? Because of a love for his son that would never die. When Roosevelt's father died when he was at Harvard in his first year in college, Roosevelt thought that he would die, that he could not survive without his father. That is a paltry, poor, and pale comparison to the love that the God of heaven and earth knows for this college student I spoke to and for each of us in this room. Leading us from a place of fear and dread and doubt to a place of absolute security and safety. And that leads then to this last thing. That the Holy Spirit is leading us not only from death to life, not only from fear to security, but the Holy Spirit is leading us from deprivation to abundance. From deprivation to abundance. Folks, we have the great privilege, the great blessing of living in Vero Beach, Florida. A place that is usually sunny. With big fluffy clouds. Along the beach where the waves lap the shore. We have the incredible blessing and privilege of living in a country where we're free to do this very thing, unlike tens and hundreds of millions of Christians in other parts of the world. But I hope we understand, and again I said this to the inquirer's class, I hope we understand that this is not the promised land. There's too much grief. There's too much sorrow. There's too much sadness, even in this glorious and wonderful place. As a friend of ours from Orlando put it, there is just so much sadness this side of heaven. Where are you going, folks? Where are you going? Where are you being led? You are being led from death to life. You are being led from insecurity and uncertainty to a place of absolute security and assurance. And you are being led from deprivation to a place of abundance and prosperity and shalom and blessing. You cannot even begin to get your mind around. And who is taking you there? The Holy Spirit of God. We have the privilege now of coming to this table, this Lord's table. In Matthew's gospel, when Jesus established this as a sacrament of his church, he said to his disciples as he gave them the cup, this cup, 
is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. I tell you the truth. I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That was Jesus' pledge to his disciples that he would finish what he started. That he would, in fact, bring them into the full enjoyment of the feast of the new heaven and the new earth at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's where we're headed, folks. And I want to invite you to come to this table and trust that God at this table, as he reminds you of the gift of his son, will encourage and feed and nourish your faith and strengthen your hearts so that you might go away from this table, out into this world, by his grace to walk faithfully before him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you have loved us with an everlasting love, that you are leading us from death to life, that you are leading us from uncertainty to absolute assurance, that you are leading us from deprivation and want and lack to a place of abundance and blessing and shalom. As we come to this table, by your spirit, would you give us a taste of what awaits us, the joys and glories in your presence forever. Come by your spirit and seal these things to our hearts. We ask in your name. Amen.